You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Create Photography Retreat. You can join several hosts from the Master Photography Podcast Network, along with well-known photographers like Nick Page and Greg Benz, at the third annual Create Photography Retreat in Las Vegas, March 28th to 30th. If you've never been around hundreds of photographers just as passionate as you are, you really have to join us and have that experience at this retreat. Tickets are on sale over at createphotographyretreat.com. They're only $387 through October 1st, 2018. Head over to createphotographyretreat.com and get your tickets today. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and I am joined at the roundtable today by Erica Kay and Brent Bergram. How are you guys? Hello, doing well. Hey, doing well also. Good. Serves you right. <laughs> All right. Today, we're going to do a listener Q&A. And so I picked six questions. If we have some time, we'll go into a seventh one. We'll, we'll see how it goes. If we do it evenly and we kind of want to keep the episode to an hour, we only have like 10 minutes per question. And some of them may go short on that. We'll see. We'll just see how it goes uh, on, <laughs> on the time there. But some of them, we, I may have to say, okay, we got to move on so we can get to the other questions um, as we have discussion. But um, I mean, I love these Q and A's. I think our listeners do too. They have a chance to be able to really influence what we talk about on the show. These, these questions came from the Facebook group. So if you're listening to the podcast and you're not in the Facebook group, I understand that not everyone likes Facebook. Some people despise it enough that no matter how much we say it came from the Facebook group, you're not going to go be there and that's fine. But if you're not opposed to Facebook, then you can go search in Facebook for Master Photography Podcast. Ask to join. You do have to answer a question. Tell us the name of a host so that you can get in the group. That'll keep the the spammers and the bots out of the group. We really just want to have listeners in the group. And we have lots of discussions going on there. So way more than we talk about on the show. There's a lot happening over in the Facebook group. It's a fun place to be. Good place to get some help on questions that you might have from other listeners even. Not even just the, the hosts of the podcast. So Go check that out and join the group if you want to. And Eric, I'm so glad we could work it out so you could be with us today because we have a lot of questions, I think, fall a lot more into your court than mine. <laughs> so, uh, so we'll see it. Plus, no pressure. The, we love to have the female voice too. That's just really important to, to bring that on. So uh, really glad to have you here. Thanks. Uh, all right. Let's start with our first question. That uh, comes from Daniel Grove. He's a pretty active... Actually, all of the, the people, the questions that we picked, I've seen a lot of them in the Facebook group. So thanks to everyone for being in that community. He says, what are changes to your business plan, pricing strategy, etc., that made your business more profitable? So Erica, why don't you take a first stab at this? What, what have you done to help make your business more profitable? Uh, I feel like there. I feel like there are a lot of things. I mean, I think pretty much anything that you do to kind of level up your business will help you make more profit. But I think there are two things that have really stood out to me in my business um, and stood out to my clients as well. Therefore, obviously, creating more profit for me. Um, the first one I think is just the the client experience that I've put together. So I have what I think is a very 
a very good client experience from from the moment that they first reach out to me through final delivery of pro- product and even beyond that. Um, I take very good care of my clients. And I've talked about this a lot on Portrait Session in the past. I think I've mentioned it a few times even on uh, Master Photography Podcast and Improved Photography Podcast back when we were Improved Photography. And um, I think treating your clients extremely well and doing things above and beyond for them is probably one of the best ways that you are going to be more profitable because not only are they going to be happy with you and come back time and time again, but they're going to refer you to all their friends and family and be a really huge source of income for you. Um, So focusing on that client experience is really important. And whether that, you know, that can mean different things to different people. That might mean you know, showering them with gifts. It might mean, <laughs> uh, you know, just like um, having reveal sessions and, and album sessions and, and just spending more time with them. It, it means different things for different people. And you can do whatever it is you think your clients are going to appreciate. But if you're really focusing on that experience and creating a really positive, um, engaging, enjoyable experience for them, then, you know, you're, you're going to win. Um, The second thing that I think has made my business more profitable, and it's something that is uh, a current um, progression of mine, I kind of, I focus on this all the time, and it's something that I'm really focusing on right now, but it's, it's a process of redesigning everything in your business from your website to your branding to the client experience, you know, everything to really focus on the appreciation of high end services and products and setting those expectations from day one. So making sure from the, from the very beginning that your clients know that you are providing them with a very high end service, that they should expect very high end products from you and that they are not, going to walk away with just the digitals in a gallery because, you know, that's fine. I'm not bashing that at all. I, I give all of my digitals in a gallery as well, but you're not going to make a ton of money that way. Most photographers who are making a lot of money are doing more than that. They're focusing on really high-end products, um, which is uh, going back to the client experience as well. That's part of the client experience, but focusing on those products and that high-end experience um, and high-end a- appreciation is really going to bring in the big bucks. So I have a question for you before we go on to Brent and see what he has to say here. Yeah. You've, you've done some pretty good experiments with online marketing for your business, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what are the things that have worked there, like the different mediums you may have tried versus, and is word of mouth still the very best way that you're getting business? Uh, yes. <laughs> so to, to answer your, your second question, I think word of mouth is still one of my, my best uh, referral. Uh-huh whatever you want to call it. Um, I do get more people through word of mouth, but I do get a lot of people other ways too. I have tried lots of different things and that's something that I'm actually really planning on focusing on once wedding season is over is, is experimenting even more with different advertising methods. Um, so I can come back and share my experiences okay. here in maybe six months or so. But I, I think also just having a really good social presence is, is really important. I've been slacking on that over the past month or so just with my wedding and my honeymoon and, um, wedding season. But, um, 
having a social presence and engaging with people, not just posting and, and forgetting, but engaging with people has been pretty valuable as well. And actually more valuable than, than paying for ads or, or any sort of, uh, paid advertising. Okay, good. Yeah. I, I think I have a similar kind of experience I'll talk about in a second, but Brent, what about you? What have you done for, uh, making your prof- your business more profitable? Well, b- before I get to that, I want to ask, uh, Erica, one more question if I could, and that yeah, is, yeah. what's your, what are you defining as high end products? Can you, for those listeners who are kind of out there and just kind of like, um, what specifically can I look at? What, what's that one thing maybe that they could at least consider or look at as a high end product? Yeah, it's going to be different depending on your market and where you're located. You have to pay attention to your market. Your market's going to tell you what you can and can't do. Um, So for me, I live in in the city. I serve primarily um, urban couples. So uh, I think the tastes of of my clients might be a little different than if I was in, you know, the country in Montana or something. Um, but for me, my high end products consist of really nice albums, not, not just like photo books, but lay flat, thick page albums with, with really nice covers and embossing and, and all that. Um, you can get those at tons of different labs. You can go, you know, kind of the base level through Miller's I'm not and by basement level that's still a very nice album not <laughs> by right. any means saying you know Miller's is crap because I actually love Miller's um, so you can go somewhere like Miller's or you can go to these custom album um, processors or labs that focus just on these super humongous high-end albums that cost you as a photographer thousands of dollars mm, which means you then wow. have to charge your clients you know triple that. So you have lots of different options there. So my clients love albums. My clients love high quality metal prints. Again, I think that's kind of more of an urban thing. Um, And canvases are still somewhat popular. uh, But I think they're kind of for my clientele. Anyway, they're, they are kind of losing steam, especially when compared to metals. Sure. Cool. Excellent. Uh, for my uh, business, as far as um, having a completely different business than right. what Erica has, uh, and also my skill set background is a lot different as well. So I started publishing, actually. And so uh, back in 2004, I published my first calendar. And I don't do that anymore, actually, because life has changed and I've gotten busy and all that other good stuff. But as far as local recognition in my in my area and getting a nice relationship with uh, a couple of stores and the like. So, uh, started actually really small with postcards and then, uh, expanded to a calendar. And then I went to actually publishing a book and getting it registered with its own ISBN. But I sell it, the book through one store in town. So it's not like it's nationally distributed or anything like that. But if you were to look up, uh, my, my name on any, book registry, you'd still find it there. But for me, I started publishing. Uh, and there w- probably the way I was able to make that profitable is that I'm also a designer. So I was able to set up all my files and take care of all the printing and do everything myself. And when I'm dedicating my time, it's a labor of love. And if I had to pay something, someone to do this, I don't think I would have been as excited about getting it done because publishing a calendar a book, et cetera, is rather expensive when you take in the labor of, of designing and setting up something that's, you know, actually 
going to look good and and hopefully uh, be produced well. And I'm able to use uh, the equipment I have at work for personal projects. Obviously, I reimburse my employer, but um, so I have all the production facilities to make the calendar and the like. So uh, in, in one sense, I'm spoiled. But if you can find online printers to get the, the ball rolling, uh, that might be a good way for people to to get things moved along. And then for the postcards, really, I just use PS print. I don't do those. Those are, you know, I, I get them when I print 2000 postcards, I get them for about four to six cents a piece. And, um, it's, it's, it can be profitable, but it's still pennies a piece. Uh, so you'll hope for uh, massive quantities when you come to postcards. And it, how do you get your postcards sold? Where do you, how do you, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to ask. Well, that's the, so the initial thing I did, because there's no way I want to go with 2,000 postcards and then go and say, hey, would you carry my postcards? Right. Uh, so I printed off on my uh, a little uh, portfolio on my printer, and I went to several stores around town and said, hey, I'm looking at producing a line of postcards. Here's what I'm thinking of doing. Which ones do you think would sell? And they would tell me which ones they thought would sell. They, some of them really loved the idea. Some of them were like, eh, whatever. <laughs> and, um, so you just focus on the ones that are positive and all that. And so that's nice. And, um, when they gave me that feedback, I was then able to set up the file. And, uh, initially I started actually with just a local printer doing regular offset printing. But when internet printing came a thing, uh, I just went to internet printers and when you order enough quantity, it gets that per unit rate low enough. Uh, the thing that's kind of got me going now is actually I find the postcards fairly annoying because I've been uh, stocking them and you know replacing them and whatever as they sell out. But I've decided there's not enough profitability there, but it was certainly a good thing to get some name recognition, at least locally. Because when I'm out and about shooting, if if someone happens to see me, uh, and I tell them my name, Oh, you're the guy that publishes the calendar or the book or the postcards or whatever. And then also our town has become over the, I, I was able to get these out right at the beginning of our town becoming a tourist trap. So we do get quite a bit of tourists and, and, um, pretty much they're the ones buying all this stuff. It's, it seems like it's, it's just way harder to make a, a landscape kind of business go these days. Yeah. It's just, yeah. wow. <laughs> There's so many trying to do it. And it, I don't know. It feels a little bit like, say, uh, the, the kids as they're, they're growing up and doing their sports, baseball, football, basketball, right. whatever it is. There's only a tiny portion of them that have, even have a chance, remote chance yep. of, of something in professional you know, making that that their career. And it feels like landscape, there's just, it's very similar. Whereas portraits, you have a bit more of a chance to be able to make totally. that work. If oh, you yeah. The, the demand for portraits is definitely uh, more in tune with the supply for portraits, whereas the supply for a landscape is way out of whack for the demand for right. landscape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, another thing, I've, I've gotten into doing uh, workshops and the like, and... Uh, so just extending my teaching, I've been teaching for uh, 11 years. And uh, so just kind of in, expanding that teaching outside the university has been something I've been trying to focus on as well. Yeah. And doing workshops that's for either one, any of the businesses, actually, I think that that's helpful. There's lots of people who want to learn how to shoot. And uh, so that's a good way to, to make uh, your business profitable is setting up workshops, take them to a cool place and, and stuff like that, which I know you do, Brent. That's, that's another yeah. good one. 
All right. For me, um, I don't focus on this anyway because it's my hobby. I don't have any intention of making it my business. (laughs) I just do enough to kind of pay for gear occasionally. (laughs) And, uh, and so, but, but it's, it's the, one of the things that has helped and I, I have had an increase in, uh, in the portrait work that I do, uh, making sure that my website has a mobile first experience is, uh, is pretty important. And, uh, I, I say that not having done it very well <laughs> because, um, I use Zenfolio for my, my, my website for that portrait stuff and they don't have a great mobile experience on a web browser but when i deliver my uh my photos to them they do have a very good mobile app that that can be sent out to clients with and and that's really helped they've loved that so pretty much everybody uh the way that they're looking at their photos when i deliver them is on their phone and that's mm-hmm. been a it's been a big change they've they've really liked that it made they uh, Zenfolio did a good job of, of making that app. So it was something that I was, I I'm glad I worked into my workflow in working with my clients. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Is that yeah. different than just having your website optimized for mobile? No. Well, so that would be my first choice. If I wish okay. Zenfolio had a better way of doing that, they, they really don't. It's not great for a mobile experience from a web experience. So uh, it is different the way that what I'm talking about here, there's a, an app they call Photo Moments. And it, it's nice. You, you, you can create a link within Zenfolio where when you send it to the client, um, it will detect if it's on a phone or not. And if it is, it will say, hey, and they don't have the app usually almost ever. So it'll say you can go download the app and um, and then it has a really beautiful like here's your album your 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 photos kind of experience and and they can go through it in a in a actual app not just a web um, a mobile first web page um, but so so it's good and and it kind of it mostly compensates for the fact that the website itself isn't great <laughs> because of that yeah. um, but yeah. I, and I wish they would focus on that and really make it a, a seriously mobile first experience on the website that it's it's only okay. <laughs> um, nice. All right. Number two, the question, the second question came from Ken Martin and he says, how to determine print medium? What qualities in a photo make you say that that needs to be printed on a metal or a canvas or whatever it is? We've kind of already said that there's, there's some of those decisions being made. Uh, clients are kind of uh, asking for it, but Brent, I wanted to throw this your direction first. Sure. Uh, I think you've done a lot of, uh, you have a lot of experience with printing and, I yeah. kind of have the similar question. What what about a photo makes you say, "Oh, this should be on metal," or oh, "No, nah, this should go to canvas," or or glossy, or what? What? Tell me, how do you decide how uh, what what you're going to print it on? Well, for beginners, I would say certainly have a, an experimental attitude about it because when you think you're looking at an image and you think it might work and then for some reason it doesn't let that be a learning experience for you for me i would look at if it's going on a canvas i would look at the image and say and and ask myself a few questions first off is that image going to be something that i really want really big number one because if 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 I want to go really big, then I have to go canvas. So it's kind of a mechanical type issue or technical issue. But also, if it's not super duper, I would say detailed. And I don't mean something like, you know, if I had an old town Dubrovnik or 
Italian city or anything along those lines where I've got extra detail in the uh, texture of the walls or something like that. I'm not thinking details like that. I'm thinking details of subject matter. I really want to have a nice bold subject matter that is very clear and that can be seen from a far distance because that canvas is not going to hold detail very well. So if people walk up close to it, in, in my opinion, anyway, the, the canvas experience should not be something that they're doing very close. They, sh they should step back and they should take in the breadth of it and they should uh, want to soak it in from about eight feet away. Uh, and now, if you're doing eight by ten canvases, obviously, that's a different thing. But so the, the subject matter would, would be something that lends itself to a softer quality and is also very bold and has a nice large breadth of what it is you're looking at for metal print. I, that's something I actually have done, um, face mount acrylic, uh, yeah. but I've not, I've not done the actual metal, but they're very similar in the reflectivity. They're very shiny and, um, they have a nice glossy surface, although I'm sure you can get some without the glossy surface. But anyway, those tend to really emphasize the richness of the color uh -huh. and it is something to where, okay, if I've got a nice brilliant sunset or in the case of the portraits uh, that I'm sure Eric will probably talk about a little bit, um, if there's something that to help accentuate the sharpness, to help accentuate the, the fine quality details and, and you appreciate uh, those qualities of the subject. And maybe you have a greater number of, of subjects too, whether it's a nature scene or a, a, a portrait scene. That's where I would kind of say this really is going to probably be better. Uh, on the metal, but just think too, those colors are probably going to really pop uh, when you're on that metal. For me, um, when I'm producing my my own prints, I actually have a favorite paper by Kansan Infinity. It's called Barita Photographique, and it's a traditional rich feeling paper, so it's really similar to your traditional photo uh, photographic paper that you would get, you know, back when you're shooting film. It works great for black and white photography. And then the when I put color on it, it's it's really nice, vibrant colors without, as I would describe it, being too verbose. So it's not shouting those colors at you, but the colors are supported really well. Uh, but they but for black and white, that just that particular paper substance or substrate just really makes the, the black and white sing really well. And then also for me, when I'm doing canvas, it's actually when I want to go uh, rather cheap because I do have a big printer. I buy the uh, stretcher boards from a place on <clears throat> a place online called Dick Blick. They are an art supply house, and so I produce my own prints. And um, because I can do that, it's actually not that expensive. If you go to a lab, you're probably going to pay uh, a good sum to get a nice canvas made. But I just do my own stretching, and and it's really great to get a nice big image uh, created. But I will also go a step further, and usually I will paint a clear uh, brushstroke texture on there so I can get that nice uh, painterly-type texture coming through. But again, that's not something that's intended to be enjoyed up close. It's intended to be enjoyed from a distance where you can get a sense for the texture, but still the image is the overall driving force. Okay. Erica, what do you, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> Uh, not much. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> really, I 
I just listen to my clients. Like I said earlier, the market will tell you what they want. And in this case, my clients tell me what they want. So they say they want it on a metal or they want it on a canvas or they want it printed or whatever. And uh, that's what I do. So do you have, <laughs> I know you, you do the interviews with, you sit down with your clients way before you're doing a shoot and you, you talk through it. Do you have like yeah. samples then that you show them like, okay, so that you can see here's what it looks like with metal. Here's what it looks like with canvas or how do you? Yeah. 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 So they, they see it. Usually twice, they see it at the very beginning when we have the pre-wedding consultation or the pre-booking consultation. This is somebody's reached out. They said, I'm interested. And I say, okay, let's meet, let's chat, let's get to know each other. So um, during that, going back to from the very beginning, showcasing the high-end products and the high-end experience, I show them all of these things. Um, this is There's not so much a conversation about like, this is exactly what I want. This is how much I'm going to pay for these products at that point. But more of this is what I offer. This is what you'll be able to choose from at the end. And then at the end, we sit down and actually examine everything. Sometimes I go to their house and we actually like choose the walls and the layouts and everything that we want. Um, And that's at that point is when they're saying, okay, I like this photo. Should I do it on metal or canvas or print? Um, And we go through and make all those decisions together. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what do they tend to choose? In your area. (laughs) In my area, yep. The urban environment, a lot of people go for the metals. Mm -hmm. They're becoming more and more popular. Okay. Do you, are you putting them in frames or do you just give them the the straight up prints and they they put them in the frames? Uh, For the metals, um, they come with the like mounted so that they can oh, just okay. be hung as, as they are. Okay. But for prints, if they're doing prints, I give them the option. So I do have um, some framing stores and some custom frames, framing places here in Columbus that I really like. So I let them choose. I give them, mm-hmm. you know, examples of some of those frames and say, I can do all of this for you. And some people want to do that. And some people, you know, have their own frames or, you know, want to find frames that specifically match their house and their decor. And then at that point, that, then I just give them the prints. So when you said metal prints, you're specifically talking about the kind where they're they're like the floating Metals. mount, yes, uh, yep. acrylic front kind of thing. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Big, heavy duty, expensive things. Expensive <laughs> things. Yes. Yeah. All right. So and just again, this isn't my business. This is not something I I do. So. Printing is my least favorite thing. <laughs> I, I dislike it intensely. Like I have no interest in pursuing a lot in the printing, and I know it's lim- it limits you know the profitability. I understand all of that. I just don't care about it. So I do this for fun. That's not fun to me. I don't care. <laughs> so um, so I, I offer it to the clients that I have, but I'm really not interested in selling them prints. And um, I'd ra- I, if they if all they did was look at the photos on their phone, I don't care. That's fine with me. So because really, kind of the fun for it to me is uh, spending the time with them as we shoot and getting capturing some memories, capturing some stuff with them, and trying to turn the experience. Because usually, dad in particular is like hating the entire experience <laughs> and just wants it over as fast as he can. 
Uh, and he doesn't want to have to pay a whole lot of this for this either. So that's right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it tends to work out. My clients are like, yeah, I, I actually kind of like that. Well, they can do with the prints or the, the images, whatever they want. I give them full licensing guide, like, go, you know, whatever you want to do. If you never print them, whatever, if you want me to print them, I'll do it for you. I don't really care to, but, <laughs> but I'll do it for you. So I, you know, I don't really, it's purely cost driven. If they have me print it, then it's usually canvas. They're again, they're cost, uh, sensitive. So, uh, I don't do much else besides that. And, and I don't really, for myself, um, it's mostly been canvas too. Just again, the, the cost of it. And I, I still like how the canvases look, although mm-hmm. I am really wanting to put some, <laughs> some of those floating metal prints up. So anyway, there's, there's what I think about it. That's, that's how I see it. All right. Question three comes from Rick Osman. I don't know if I said that right. Onsman, something like that. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> How do you I think diff- it's Onsman? Onsman. Okay, that's probably right. How did you? I've seen his name constantly too because he's in the Facebook group a lot. Yeah. I just never tried to pronounce it. That's the danger of doing that now on on a podcast. Yeah, I, I interviewed him on the uh, the bag thing oh. I did for Latitude. So, well, yeah. then you would know. That's good. Okay, Rick Onsman. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> How do different cameras use auto ISO? In what situations might it be a good thing to use? How does it work in auto, AV, TV, and manual modes? All right. So, uh, as we went through the notes. Uh, both of you said you don't do this. <laughs> you don't do auto ISO. So I won't, I won't take it to either of you, I guess. Um, let me, I'll, so I'll just share kind of how it is for me. I, I also do not primary, I, I haven't used it much auto ISO and I need to do it more. The, and the reason I don't do it much was the first couple of cameras that I had, um, it didn't support a ceiling on the auto ISO. So right. the, the first couple of Canon cameras that I had, it was there. You could do auto. And if you were in a super dark room, it would go ahead and go all the way up to the max auto that the camera supports, which was awful. <laughs> you had snowstorms of noise ending in those, uh, ending up in those photos. And it just became completely impractical. Like I, I just couldn't really even use it because of that. So um, just really briefly, I, I'm, I don't want to spend a ton of time on the technical aspects of it, but what auto ISO does, and it works in uh, in full auto mode, it's going to do it anyway, I think. But in, yeah. a, in aperture priority, in shutter priority or in manual mode. And that's where it's probably the most valuable, I think, would be in manual mode, so long as you can set the ceiling. But the idea would be after you have done shutter or aperture and um, you kind of want to have the camera also consider setting the ISO for you automatically based on the metering that your camera has and and what the proper exposure is going to be. Um, after your camera reaches your limit. So let's say you're in aperture priority, for example, and you've already got the shutter. Well, no, a better example would be shutter priority because aperture is not going to, it's not a great one to use it on. Shutter priority, you've set it at a specific shutter. Then your camera to get the right exposure, it may take your aperture and open it up as wide as it possibly can go at the focal length you're at. And, but it's still underexposed. The light meter still says it's underexposed. Then your camera is going to, for you, make the decision of, I'm going to bump the ISO up now so that we get to a proper exposure based on what the metering says. 
And, and that's a really nice thing to have in that case. If you're shooting shutter priority, it's like sports, for example, would be great. You want shutter priority to make sure you're freezing the action and you may not want to be worrying about aperture all the way through. Maybe there's clouds going by or something where the light's changing a lot. Then you can, if you set auto ISO, it, your camera's first going to try to, to get there and, and make the exposure right. Um, with your aperture and if it can't open it up any wider you've reached the limits of your lens then it's going to go to iso and do that for you same in manual only then you're controlling both of those things and now when you go to take the shot the camera is going to look at the, what the light meter says and it's going to set the iso so that you get a and a properly exposed image right in the middle of that exposure meter so that's that's how it's supposed to work i and again i i didn't use it mostly because i I haven't thought about it. I haven't, um, I have cameras now where I can set it. So in the menus, in, in my cameras that I have today, you can go in there and you can say, I want, if, if you're using auto ISO, uh, I want you to only go up to say 3,200 or whatever value you're comfortable with, with your photos and don't go any further than that. And that's probably something I should do and probably just leave it so that the camera will do it. And then you can, you can, um, you can use exposure compensation to give it a little more information. If you are on purpose wanting to underexpose a little bit, for example, something like that, then, then you, there's other ways to do it. Uh, that, that maybe another reason I haven't used it that much is I don't find myself in situations where the light is changing so fast. I can't keep up with it. Um, usually I, it's rare that that's the case. Yeah, I think that's really the the best use case is if you have <clears throat> some kind of fast action thing going on and the light is also changing rather quickly. This seems to make a lot of sense to go ahead and, and switch it into auto ISO. Uh, otherwise, it's, it is definitely not something I, I would be used to using, uh, having shot more of my time using film than than digital still. Uh, you know, we didn't have that opportunity at all. And it's just it's one of those things that gets ingrained in you after a while. And it's just something that's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, I guess. Yeah. I, I I've worked so hard at kind of auto responding to the light. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's more along my thought process too. Yeah. With my own changes to shutter aperture and ISO, I, I, it, it doesn't, it's become something I don't really actually have to think about anymore. And that's right. kind of where I think I would recommend people go. Now, if you're not there, auto ISO is probably a, a pretty decent thing to do. Pretty, pretty yes. good thing, especially the Absolutely. shutter priority kind of thing. If you're not used to setting it, then, then that's probably going to be very helpful, especially if you can set that ceiling. Um, but for me, it's just, I, uh, I've, I've got so used to using the camera. I built the muscle memory, even with the buttons. I'm not actually thinking about, oh, I need to go down on the shutter speed or I need to, to open up the aperture or um, I've reached my limits on both of those and so I'm going to bump up the ISO. I don't, I don't find myself actually spending a lot of brain power on that while I'm shooting anymore because I've, I've got so much experience with it with my camera. And I'm thinking about all the other things now. I'm thinking about composition. I'm thinking about, um, is my horizon straight? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm focusing on a whole lot of other things. Where, how am I going to pose this person that, that I'm taking the picture of? And, uh, and the other things are just coming to me now because of that experience. So it, auto ISO, I think would might probably be a good thing for someone that hasn't reached that place yet. But I think that's that I would recommend that be the goal a lot more than relying on auto, auto ISO to help you with this. Um, Erica, did you want to add anything? 
Uh, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't use it. And I really think that the best use of that is as as you guys were talking about, like um, sports and, and things where yeah. you're you have very quick, rapidly changing subjects and, and areas. Right. And it's just rare. That's just, it's not something that's, if you have, it, usually the place that would be, I, that I would think of is like a, a day where there's clouds rolling by and yeah, all of a sudden the light can very dramatically change. Uh, and, and you don't necessarily, you know, that may be a case where I might actually use it. But if that's the case, you probably have quite a bit of flexibility. Like you're probably outdoors and there's probably sufficient light that, you may not, you probably don't have to go to ISO to get the right exposure and just having kind of a semi-automatic mode is going to take care of it. But anyway, that, that's, that's kind of what it's there for. Uh, and we, I did have a quick note that I wanted to make kind of similar topic here. We had a lot of people give us feedback on the episode that Connor and I did on exposed to the right. And the one thing I don't think I made super clear as I, we did that episode and it was in the notes, but I don't think it ended up in the audio. Exposing to the right doesn't mean you have to end up with the the exposure meter saying that it's on the right side of the uh, the scale there. It doesn't have to mean that you're like on the positive side of the scale. Exposing to the right can mean that you are actually like on the left side of the scale. You're just making sure that you protect your highlights. And sometimes that means, yeah, I want to purposely underexpose because I'm going to make sure those highlights are going to end up being uh, not not be blown out. And so that's still exposing to the right, even though it's on the left side of the scale. So I didn't make that clear in the episode. And uh, oh, the other thing I didn't make clear is if you are working on your exposure still you're you're not nailing it in the middle like you're having a hard time figuring out how to change your settings no business messing around with ettr don't go there don't do exposed to the right just work on getting exposure so that it's it's in the middle consistently and you know how to use the shutter aperture and iso to to get there so all right those are the two little quick notes i want to make there uh, and we are about halfway through the show, halfway through the questions. I think we've done a pretty good job of sticking to our 10 minutes or less. So we want to take a quick break here for uh, to thank the sponsor for this episode. If you're anything like me and you're looking for a professional printing service to turn your photos into canvas prints, you want someone who's reliable, who's using the highest quality canvas, and who is affordable. Well, good news, Royal Canvas is all three of those things. They print in 11 colors, use premium canvas that doesn't crack when it's stretched, and they ship super fast, usually within two or three days of ordering. Plus, if you ever need to contact them, you'll be talking to a real person who can help you out with accurate information and resolve any problems quickly. With Royal Canvas, you're getting a premium quality canvas, archival ink, and an expert stretch. So go ahead and give it a try. Go to royalcanvas.com master and you'll get 40% off of a single canvas print and an additional 10% off of poster or metal prints. Or if you'd like a sample, feel free to email service at royalcanvas.com and they'll send you a free canvas color swatch. That's royalcanvas.com master for 40% off of a single canvas print and an additional 10% off of poster or metal prints. Okay, next question comes from Jeff Mesco. He says, methods and techniques for balancing flash with ambient light in portraits. Thinking the flash is too hot or the background's too dark, how do you start? Do you change the aperture, the shutter, the ISO, which one first, when and how to balance things out? Do you change the, the flash power manually? How do, you, how do you make it so that you balance ambient light 
and the artificial light. And so, Erica, this is perfect for you. <laughs> I imagine you're, you're dealing with this very consistently. So what, what do you have to say for Jeff? Well, first, I think this is such a good question. I think this is something that a lot of people struggle with, uh, especially people who are first um, starting out with with flash, especially off camera flash. Um, so I love that he asked this question. One thing that I always tell people is to focus on your shutter speed because your shutter speed is the the setting that controls your ambient light. So having a lower shutter speed in a darker environment is really going to bring out the the light in that darker environment. So focus on your shutter speed over, over anything else. Um, so one thing that I always recommend doing when you're first starting to experiment with this is your first step should be to expose your camera, set your camera settings so that you have the exposure that you want for the background or the environment. So don't have your flash on. Don't even pay attention to your flash at this point. You're just focusing on your camera settings and getting the exposure that you want for your background. That may be really bright and beautiful. That may be really dark. It may be somewhere in the middle. It, you know, it just depends on how you prefer that specific environment to look. So get your settings there and your camera. Then you're going to pull in your flash and focus on um, manually going back to that question about manual uh, settings on your flash, manually adjusting the settings on your flash so that you have the exposure on your subject that you want with the flash. Does that make sense? So you're, you're, you're using your camera settings for the environment and then you're using your flash settings for the subject. Mm -hmm, right. Um, some people may want uh, you know, more contrast between the background and the subject. So you'd have a darker background and a, um, a higher power on your flash. Uh, but some people want it really balanced. And, and it's just kind of experimentation and trial and error. So for me, as an example, for reception photos, I love to be able to see the lights and the colors at a wedding reception in the environment because oftentimes people have spent a lot of money yeah. to have you know beautiful <laughs> up lighting or chandeliers or twinkle lights or whatever so i want to make sure that those are coming through in the photos so i tend to have uh, a little tiny bit of darkness in the background but it's pretty balanced in terms of the background and the subject so i typically start out at a reception with my 70 to 200 lens, my shutter speed is right around 100. So it's, it's slow enough to really let that ambient light in, but not so slow that I'm going to get motion blur um, with my flash freezing the motion. I'm usually at about 2.8, maybe 3.5, something like that. My ISO is pretty low, usually around four to 600. And then I have my flash set at like 164th. And that's usually how I start out and take a test shot with, with it that way. And then I'll make some minor adjustments if I want, so either to the flash power, if I want the subject more lit or a little bit darker, or to my shutter speed, if I want the, the background or the environment a little darker, a little brighter. And, and that's it. So once you kind of get the hang of, um, of like what settings are going to give you what kind of exposure, it, it's super easy and super quick. It's just a matter of continue, continuing to practice and experiment with it. But the main thing you need to focus on for your ambient light is your shutter speed and then bring in your, your flash and adjust your flash power manually. And I, I do want to inject here too, that if your goal is to get a really dark background, which is not really his question here because he wanted to balance it. But if you wanted to get a dark yeah. background, uh, you have to be aware for so a lot of people stumble over this, that there is a max sync speed for yes. your camera. 
And so most of it, it, they're different. Every single camera, not even within the same camera maker, you know, like in, in your Nikon lineup or in your, your Canon lineup, is it the same? But there's a shutter speed at which uh, you will start to get bars, black bars in the photo because the part of the shutter is covering the sensor because of that, that shutter speed so fast. So one two fiftieth is, is pretty much the max on anything, but some of them are, for, are before that. So I know Connor's recommended one sixtieth of a second is kind of the, the fastest he recommends people go in general. But if you know what it is, you can go right up to the edge, right up to the, the maxing speed and be comfortable and, and fine. Uh, so if you don't know what it is on your camera, it's a good thing to look up and be aware of so that you know you can't take the shutter speed higher than that if you're using artificial light with your flashes with your uh, your shots all Absolutely. right all right so brent any other suggestions you have for for uh, balancing ambient light and artificial yeah i just have a question on erica's uh scenario there with the reception is that the off-camera flash or is that the on-camera flash scenario that you that's, just painted that, for us that's off-camera i don't do on-camera at all okay. so any examples that I would give about flash would be considered off camera. Okay. So how do you handle the, the varying distance between your flash and your subject? Because as you have that greater distance between flash and subject, you certainly have uh, some light variance happening. Or is mm-hmm. your flash intended only to be a little more of that ambient pop and the ambient light is still more uh, the, the power in your, in your exposure? Mm-hmm. Well, so I, my subjects are always lit by the flash. It's, I don't re- rely on ambient for my subjects. So I've recently started doing something new. So I'm going to talk about two different, two different ways of lighting the subject. In the past, I always set up usually three, three lights and they were situated around the room, like in a, a triangle formation. Sure. So at any point I had a light really close to the subject. Um, There might be a very slight change, in which case I would just, uh, for me, the quickest way to to combat that would be to just um, change my ISO just by one or two little pops. Uh, But I was never in a situation where a subject was so far away from the light that I had to make drastic changes. In that case, if you had a second, you would be better off um, adjusting your flash power. Uh, because changing anything on your camera is going to change your background as well. So if you right. had to really increase your ISO because your subject was really far away from the flash, then you would not only be, you know, bringing up the exposure on your subject, but you'd also bringing up the exposure everywhere else as well, which is, you know, may not go well with the rest of your photos because it's all of a sudden so bright in the background. Sure. Um, now, I recently started my husband, who's my second shooter, has become my... Uh, my human light stand <laughs> for weddings now uh, and we rotate on and off. Sometimes I'm, I get tired of shooting. So I take the light and he starts shooting and we kind of, it's like this delicate dance throughout the yes. reception where we're, we're moving together and we're, you know, making hand signals to each other. So the light, he knows exactly what I'm shooting and exactly where to put the light so that I don't have to change those settings all the time. Oh, yeah. That's, that's really, really nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. Because then you can get really consistent results Right. When you have when you have that down pat, you can get really consistent results, and that's cool. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. that's how it's it take, definitely takes some getting used to. Like the yeah. first couple t- couple weddings, I was like, "What the heck are you doing?" <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, but yeah. um, it's getting every wedding; it gets better and better. Yeah, my wife and I do the same thing. She she holds the lights, and I hold. We take turns, just like you said. It's really been nice. It, it's so good. I, it, 
especially when I'm doing family portraits, like I said, dad wants to get this over as fast as possible. So he, <laughs> yeah. there's no patience for, oh, wait, I got to go move the light stand and adjust this. Right. And they're just like, oh, gosh, right. this, why are we, <laughs> what are we going to do? So it's really not a lot nicer to have a person sitting there holding the lights so that we can, we can get them there and, and do it. And uh, it, that's been awesome to have. Yeah. And the flash power too. So Erica threw out some settings there that she starts with and that's, that's good for the equipment she's got. But uh, just be aware, yeah. listeners, yeah. that the equipment's not equivalent. Flashes are not the same power. <laughs> the, the wattage that they have are not the same. So 164th on one set, one light, uh, one flash, not the same as 164th on another. And uh, so you, you got to know your equipment to kind of know where to start and uh, and how to use it. It's just, it takes a lot of practice so that you have it down and are ready for those live situations when, again, most people are not going to have patience for you playing around with this. So, mm-hmm. so get some experience. All right. I think we got that one covered. Let's go to question five. Matt Morrison, he asked, it's, very, it's flash related, how does TTL flash look at the test exposure and decide at what power to fire for the final shot? So, Brandon, I'm going to throw this your way first. Tell, what is it, what's it going to look like as you're... So, we're, we just talked about balancing with ambient light. Yeah. I think that's where he's headed with this is if you're using TTL, how does that first shot look? So we're talking about through the lens. That's what TTL means. And so it's taking that flash through the lens. So it, what's actually happening when you take your shot is you're going to have a pre-flash that is going out just almost instantaneously before it actually takes the shot itself. And so it's taking into account two basic things. First off, that pre-flash uh, it, it knows the camera knows the power of what's happening with that pre-flash and it would probably vary depending on the distance that the subject is, is at. So if they're further away, it's probably going to send out a little more power just so it can have some of that light bouncing back so it can test it out. But it will take the distance information from the lens and it will say, okay, how far away is the subject? It will send a quick little pre-flash that's a standard amount and it will take that reading and say, okay, that standard amount was this bright for a quote, properly exposed item. I need it to be uh, subject. I need it to be this bright. You know, right. one thing that could be a little bit of a caveat to your exposure is what is your subject wearing? What is the ambient light around your subject? Those kinds of things could maybe throw it off a little bit, but Usually the the systems are working together pretty well to to balance it with the ambient light. Um, what I would normally do when I'm shooting with a TTL, uh, it's not something I do a whole lot anymore. But uh, when I have been doing a lot of um, shots, whether it's for the the tourism area or some clients I had here in town, uh, I would actually set that TTL to negative two thirds and just run with it because I wanted that ambient light to be really balanced and really the primary. And it was the intent of my flash to just fill in the shadows and not be the overpowering uh, exposure part there. Yeah. So I I guess, Erica, what about you? Have any experience with TTL? No, I actually went the difficult route when I was first learning flash and learned (laughs) manual. (laughs) So I never, never did anything with TTL. So, and actually, I think my opinion is manual's easier. Yeah. (laughs) I think so too. It's a lot easier than TTL. Uh, Because you don't have to. Computer. Yeah, oh, sorry, you don't have ahead. to deal with your camera making this these weird decisions for you. Yeah. And like from shot to shot, depending on where your light meter is. So especially yeah. with Canon cameras where the light meter 
if you're using, uh, yeah, it, it's it's going from the center, the the middle of the frame is where it's going to focus. Now, if you're it, depending on your metering mode, it has various levels of that, but it can get fooled from shot to shot. And as you focus yeah. and recompose or, or whatever it might be, it's really easy for the the light meter to not be looking at what you want are looking at in the photo, what you care about in the photo. And to have the flash be based on kind of what the light meter is telling you as you're shooting, it takes a little bit of the control away and makes it hard to get consistent results, I think. So I, I, know, I know people love TTL. There's a lot of people who swear by it. For me, I find it very confusing and like I have no control over the flash anymore. And Absolutely. I, I like it way better to just do manual. It, I, I have, it's kind of a nice thing too because now it means I have less expensive flashes. I don't have to pay for that, <laughs> the TTL yeah. function. Uh, but it, it's hard. So, I mean, just to really directly answer his question, it, it's the, the test exposure, really all you're going to want to look at if you're using TTL and you, you fired a test shot to see how it looks, you can't worry about what the subject, like the flash ended up on the subject because your flash is going to set that for you. It's the ambient light. So what, how does the background look? What does the surroundings look like? So that you'll change your settings for the background getting the way you want. And then you're going to hope... <laughs> Everything works out so that the camera and the flash talk together and arrive at a good setting for the flash uh, on your subject, which I don't. Well, you, yeah, go and ahead. you can adjust the power of the flash, sure. but it's it's kind of a relative adjustment. It's not a, a finite adjustment right. like uh, Eric is doing with the manual. And that's why I say manual is agree that a manual is definitely easier because if you move that little slider or whatever the case is, push those buttons, the flash will behave in a very predictable manner. And with TTL, it takes a lot of practice to understand and under see how it's going to ha- behave. So when you are looking for that predictable behavior, where it worked best for me, um, and again, this is just something I, I don't do a whole lot of, but wide angle street photography actually did great with TTL because there's so much that the the camera meter is averaging out anyway. And I would tone down that light. So it's just a little kiss of light that if it was a little bit off, it wasn't a big deal. Right. Um, so that it worked beautifully for me in that rather consistently it's when you get into the zoomed in portrait styles i i couldn't handle ttl in a portrait that yeah. just would drive me nuts <laughs> yeah yep so i i don't know for th- what that's worth man <laughs> i hope that helped to answer your question <laughs> i just wouldn't use it if i was you i would i'd go do manual and manual doesn't mean that you have to walk over to the flash and change the settings by the way uh, you know, don't mistake it for that because I think all of us use something where we can just we have a, a on the on the on camera hot shoe we have a device where we can wireless like remote um, change the settings and uh, so it doesn't mean you have to walk over to the flash and change it when we say manual it's just mm-hmm. you're you're doing the settings you're choosing what the flash power is going to be very specifically you're not having letting the camera or the flash kind of try to decide for you all right question six. Uh, this comes from Dustin Graffa. He says, posing, getting good expressions out of our subjects, clients, compositions, building the shot, photography, exercises, stay fresh. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. He wants anything but gear settings or specs, which uh, I... Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Erica says, a- amen. Um, all right. So, Erica, this is clearly something for you. So, let, let's focus on the posing. That's, I think, what he, he wanted the most. Getting natural expressions, building kind of a good flow between your subjects and... and and 
I know that you've spent some time on Portrait Session talking about this, and we could spend like an entire episode here or more. But in the next 10 minutes, <laughs> what are some, some really basic starting things that you would suggest for posing? Uh, yeah, we could have like a whole, not just an episode, but a whole podcast that's just talking about this. And you do. Um, well, yeah, but we talk about other things too. But yeah. <laughs> um, if you're going to the retreat, Dustin, come to my my presentations because I talk a lot about this in my presentations at the retreat too. So you you know, just come check me out. Yeah. Uh, but but seriously, natural client expressions is is the way to go. It is getting photos of people interacting with each other and being natural with each other are going to sell way more than just the, the, the posed look at the camera and smiling photos. You know, those, those photos are important too. People want those photos, but there is nothing like being able to bring out natural expressions in your clients. Um, so there, there are lots of things you can do, lots of different ways to go about this. Um, in my experience, you know, obviously I'm going to talk about my experience and the things that have, have worked for me. So, uh, getting to know them, getting to know your clients is really important. And that, again, is, is going back to my client experience that I talked about at the very beginning of the show. Incorporate into your workflow ways to get to know them, whether that is, you know, hanging out with them in person before you're shooting or giving them questionnaires that they can answer that talk about them and their relationship or, you know, the things they like to do, things they're interested in. Figure out who they are and what they like so that you you know them and you can talk to them about things that are meaningful and important to them when you're together shooting, because that's going to make them more natural and more relaxed. Uh, a lot of people don't like small talk and will not feel relaxed if you're just, you know, chatting about the weather or whatever. <laughs> so if you can have conversations that are really meaningful to them, it's, it's going to be so much better for you while you're photographing them. So get to know them. You also will become more familiar with how to direct them if you're if you're familiar with them and you have that questionnaire in place. You are going to know whether they describe their relationship as really passionate and loving or they describe their relationship as, you know, something funny or goofy or silly and that will guide your direction of them. So if you have a couple that's that's really passionate, you can direct them into natural organic poses that will feel natural to them and result in natural expressions. But if you have a couple that is really kind of goofy and silly and not really passionate and you put them, try to put them into a passionate embrace, they're not going to feel comfortable and they're not going to have really good natural expressions that you're going to want to photograph. So um, you, you need to take that knowledge of them so that you know how to direct them. Uh, another recommendation is um, to, to, Give them good cues. And this, again, these cues will be based on what you know of them. Going back to the passion example, if you know that they're a passionate couple and you want to give them a cue, you can tell them like, um, you know, tell her why you can't wait to marry her or tell him what what your favorite thing about him is. If they're passionate, they're going to react really well to that. If they're silly or goofy, they're not. They're probably going to giggle, which, you know, will give you some nice giggly photos, but they're just not going to react to that kind of cue. So you need to make sure that you're giving them good cues that will result in their natural expressions. Um, 
you can also tell jokes. You can tell stories. Jokes are good for making people laugh, even if they're like the lamest joke. Uh, you know, you you can tell jokes and you'll probably get some giggles out of it. I usually let my husband uh, take on the joke role because <laughs> uh, I'm not very good at jokes. I always mess them up and I'm like, well, um, wait, no, that's wrong. Let me back up. And it just it just backfires. That's completely, funny, too. So. Yeah, well, exactly. yeah. <laughs> I get some giggles out of that too, sure. but it just doesn't work so well. But so I put him on joke duty. But if you feel confident in telling jokes, you know, have a, a stockpile of jokes that you can use during sessions to get people to laugh. And then the last thing that I I recently heard this uh, from another educator, and I really loved this analogy. They they were talking about. Uh, the act of photographing two people instead of three people. So what they mean by that is that you as a photographer need to focus on photographing those two people that are in front of your camera instead of creating a photo of three people, which would be your couple and yourself. So if you're, if you are directing your clients in a way that is very much about you, so, you know, stand here, put your head here, put your hand here, do this, do this, do this. That's a photo of three people. That's that's two people who are probably a little uncomfortable because they feel very much like they're, you know, at a photo studio on picture day or something. And the third person would be you because you're giving too much direction and you're making them stand in this perfect pose. So instead of having that photograph of three people, you need to make sure you're photographing just those two people. And the way to do that is for you to step back, stop giving so much like perfect critique and direction on where to put your hand and your head and all that kind of stuff and focus on really just bringing those natural expressions out. Um, if you really want to know like tips for posing, like really basic tips for posing as far as like technical, perfect posing, Go over to Improve Photography Plus and you can find my posing course there. At least I think it's still <laughs> there. <laughs> um, right. If not, reach out to me and I can get it to you. Um, and then I also, when we get to the doodads, I'll share with you um, my doodad this week, which has a lot of, of good stuff related to this. Okay. So I wanted to share just a couple of things that I do with families. So the first thing that I do, um, and I've just learned it by painful experience, is I, I make sure to get with the parents. We usually just meet at some place where they want it, like a, a place important to them, someone local here that they wanted to take photos at. And we, we are talking just beforehand, and I, I make sure to say to the parents, your job is to look at the camera and smile. Don't do anything else because they have ruined... I've had so many photo shoots just totally ruined because... Every single shot either has mom or dad or both with their head turned telling the kid to get in the right spot or to do something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, okay, you are not helping here. So we, we make sure to say right up front, say, okay, look, my wife is here to help make sure that your kids are posed the way that they need to be. We're going to work with them to get them to smile. We're going to work with them to, to make sure we have a good photo. Your entire job is to ignore them. <laughs> I want you to just look at the camera and smile so that you don't ruin the shots. And then all through the, sh the shoot, they, of course, completely ignore that advice and are, are trying to get with the kids. And then it kind of becomes funny, too. Like, we, as we're taking pictures, I'm like, hey, dad, just look at me. Just
says, look at me, dad. And the kids think that's pretty hilarious that we're talking to dad and, and he's the one getting in trouble because, um, <laughs> because he's not doing what he should. And, and then it, it ends up, uh, that really helps a lot through it. They, they finally catch on to it later and, and realize that that's, that's all they have to do is just do that. And then, uh, and, and I always make jokes too about like, I'm almost done, dad. Don't worry. We're, we're, we're working on this. We're going to be done really soon. It's the pain is almost over. It's just stuff like, like, like you said, the little kind of lines and jokes that uh, tends to lower the mood and, and relax everybody a little bit. They all, I usually they, they arrive. Mom and dad just got done having a discussion with the kids saying, you're going to all be dead. If you do not <laughs> smile in these pictures, we are paying a lot of money to get these photos and you have to smile. And, and it puts everyone on really this big edge that, uh, that they have a struggle with. The first few are totally unnatural. Everyone's forced and it's, it's awful. So we know we have to get those out of the way, take a few pictures and get, get them kind of loosened up and, and ready to go. And by before the end, usually everyone's actually kind of having fun. Even dad, he's kind of having <laughs> fun with the pictures and, uh, and it's, it makes it good. So that's as, as important, I think, as where's your chin or, or you know, or turning your shoulders or whatever it might be is, is having them be kind of relaxed and into the shoot, um, trying to get them there. And it's going to be different with every group about how that's going to be. Yeah. All right. Well, I think those that covers the uh, the six questions we chose. I don't think we have a, a, the time for the last one in this episode. We'll get to it another another time. So let's jump to our doodads. And Erica, why don't you talk about that posing course? Yeah. So the and this is the the people that we're talking about photographing two people instead of three. Uh, the Justin and Mary. Art of Authentic Posing course is my doodad for this week. Justin and Mary are a husband and wife wedding duo. They're they're amazing. Um, their photos are beautiful, but we're, what really has propelled them and their business is their their client experience and their just their authentic images. Their their posing is just unreal. They, they are very much about create, creating photos of people and their, you know, natural reactions and their natural expressions. And, and, uh, they're just very, very good at that. So if you're interested in learning more about how to do that, definitely check out their posing course. Again, it's the Justin and Mary art of authentic posing course, and it's currently, currently on sale for two seventy nine. I think their origin regular price is three, 379 maybe um their stuff is pricey but it's very good i've done a lot of their courses and this is one that i'm actually working through right now myself very good i love it okay brent about you i'm gonna go with cans and infinity papers since we talked a little bit about printing they are usually my go-to company for printing on paper anyway just lots of great variety papers very high quality extremely just excellent paper. Uh, it's some of it's really expensive, but it's just excellent paper. The company's been around for something like 400 years, doing lots of art papers. And uh, if you want something good, uh, that's one of the best. There's certainly others that are really good, like Moab and a few other really good ones too. But I really like them, and they provide the uh, profiles for printing nice. very easily on their website. And it just they make the the process really easy to to make all that happen. So I like them. We're going to do a photo taco episode about printing, even though I don't like it, <laughs> even though I kind of despise the whole process. It's just not fun for me, but uh, we're going to do one because so many listeners have so such questions and, on, on how do we go do that. So we're going to, we're going to get together on that. I don't know when exactly. That'll be great. Yeah. And we're we're going to do it. I love printing. It's just when you see that come out and it's beautiful, it's like, 
little happy dads in your head. When you see that come out and it's ugly, it's kind of like <laughs> um, something's going on here. Yeah. But we can almost always fix it and figure out why it's it's not behaving properly. And yeah, it's 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 a good experience. I really love it. Yeah, maybe someday I'll mature and and I'll. <laughs> I want yeah. to do it. All <laughs> <Sure>. right. My <laughs> do that is ifixit.com. So I just barely fixed my first iPhone screen this week. I know Brent said that he's fixed his screen many, many times using oh, yeah. iFixit. And um, so e- even though I've done a ton of like computer repair and building my own computers and stuff over the years, I had never worked on an Apple device before. And I was really scared to death because it was still, a pain in the butt. They, yeah, it, it's tough. <laughs> they, they don't make it super easy to get in there and do anything, which is why I hadn't. I was just scared I would make the problem worse than than trying to then fixing it. And I, we, we had the situation with my son's phone and it, it's like the third time in the last year that he's cracked it and I'd paid others to do it. And I was like, okay, this is, I got to see if I can actually make this work. So I took a, I took a chance and I went over to ifixit.com. I bought the tools from them. I bought the replacement parts from them. Very reasonably priced. And the instruction that they have out there, step-by-step guides of what to do, it was great. And even though it was rated as a, a like a moderate fix, uh, it was uh, first time ever doing it. I'd never tried something like that before. It was not that hard. It was really easy. I was surprised how easy it was. So I've had a lot of listeners ask me questions about upgrading their Apple computers, which are similarly difficult to work on. And uh, iFixit provides a lot of stuff there too. If you're willing to uh, to try to do it yourself, you can save a ton of money. It will void warranties and um, it, it may not be so, so easy, but uh, it, it is an option and something to think of. If the budget's constrained, it's something you might want to try. So ifixit.com, really cool guides on fixing, repairing a whole lot of electronics. So really cool stuff. All right. Let's uh, remind everyone, masterphotographypodcast.com. It's the new home for the show. You want to go there, check it out. You're going to want the show notes so you can get the link to that posing course that Erica just talked about. Um, Facebook group, Master Photography Podcast. We talked about that. Go, go ask and join that group. We'd love to have you there. You can find my work at jsharmanphotos.com and my other podcast, Photo Taco Podcast. And uh, on Facebook, I'm Harmon Jeff. Twitter, Harmon underscore Jeff. And Instagram, Harmon Jeff. Erica, where can people find your work? You guys can find me online on Facebook and on Instagram at um, Erica K Photography. So that is E-R-I-C-A-K-A-Y Photography. All right. And the Portrait Session Podcast, of course. Of course. Yes. Yeah. So if those the listeners that were asking about the posing, if you're not listening to Portrait Session, you've got it that you have to go and subscribe to that podcast. Lots of incredible advice. Um, we had some recent news of uh being selected as one of the top portrait podcasts. So that's great. Brent, how about you? Yeah, you can find me at my website, brentbergherm.com and latitudephotographypodcast.com for my own podcast on landscape and travel photography. And then certainly I've got some Facebook groups, whether it's uh, part of my specific to my workshops or just my photo page, uh, a few things going on there on Facebook. And I've got, uh, I had an, uh, person asked me if I was thinking of going to to Chile and I was uh if you remember back when we were in pre photography we talked a lot about the solar eclipse that happened and uh, there's another one happening this summer in Chile so I'm actually starting to look together uh put together a, a workshop on going down to shoot the eclipse and nice. uh, hopefully we'll be able to re- release that in another week hopefully um it's Chile is a little bit different I'm finding so I- I'm having to 
It's, it's a little more work, but it, it's going to be a good one. It'll be all right. <laughs> if anybody is interested in, in doing that or visiting, go. Chile oh, is absolutely beautiful. I did yes. a, a study abroad there. So it's oh, wow. a place that I recommend everybody going. So yeah. definitely join join Brent on his workshop down there. It, it, it's a country that we don't know you know, as much about because it's not as much on our radar screen. But it is. I've been there. I've been to these locations that are going to be in the path of totality. I'm, you know, I'm just like compositing all these images in my head. I'm just like, okay, okay I have to go. <laughs> so hopefully we can make that, uh, make that work out. It, uh, the eclipse itself is July two. So, you know, we'll be rotating around that date as our central date. Nice. You and hundreds of thousands of other people. We were going to flock Maybe. there for that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's kind of, it's not necessarily in the middle of nowhere, but no. it's a four and a half hours drive from the capital, Santiago. So it's it'll be busy probably, but probably not as bad as it was here in the States. That's for sure. No, but enough to probably exhaust like hotels and travel and stuff right. like that, where you got to get on that quick. That's so, why I want to get on that now. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode. We're so glad to have you uh, subscribe to the podcast and we will see you in another seven days. 